It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Great singing. You may be seated. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6? I'm very thankful that you are in attendance today, whether you're online or in person. Uh, though it is more fun to preach to you in person than online, I can guarantee you that. Uh, Romans chapter 6 in your Bibles today. I'm honored that you're here. I pray that you've been encouraged so far by the service this morning. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 9. Romans chapter 6, verse number 9. When I was in the 8th grade... I attended the Pleasant Grove Christian Academy in Pleasant Grove, Texas. If you're familiar a little bit with the Dallas area, it is not far from Oak Cliff, uh, Texas, in the Dallas Metroplex area. The year before I attended Pleasant Grove, my seventh grade year in high school, I was um, it was a little tumultuous time in my family. We were moving from Washington State to Texas, and the seventh grade year I was homeschooled and um, from Washington, and, and it, I'll, I would say this, it wasn't the most challenging year academically for me. Uh, my parents were preparing to move and, and leave Washington State, go to Texas, and so um, sometimes if I didn't understand something, I could um, manipulate the situation, if you will, and get my mom to uh, say I didn't have to do my homework, and I didn't have to study or whatever the case may be. Well, uh, we got to Texas, and in my eighth grade year, I went to a new school. They were great people. I'm forever indebted to them, and it was such a blessing. But I will say this. They, they had a, a little different mindset. They were a little bit of... Uh, they were a little bit of Texas, if you will, meaning they didn't care about me. That's funny, and you should laugh. They didn't care, like, about what I went through. They, now, they were caring people, but they didn't care that I was homeschooled. They didn't care that my family had recently moved. None of that really mattered to them. As it's kind of a, a concept that it's very, very um, thought-provoking, especially in the educational systems of our day. They had a lesson plan, and they were going to teach it which is kind of rare in our day. You guys better wake up because the 830 service is going to win if you don't. Uh, there's way more of you here than was there. And so they didn't, they didn't care. They didn't care that I had been homeschooled. They didn't care about my mom. They, they cared about my mom, but you get the idea. They didn't care that she had taught me. They had a plan to teach the lesson, and they were going to teach it. And um, no amount of cajoling, no amount of questioning would prevent that. They just wanted to teach me reading, writing, math, science. It was kind of how education should be. They, they, they weren't concerned about social engineering and teaching me things that are my parents and our church's responsibility. They just wanted to teach me how to read, how to math, how to critically think. It's, it's the whole idea of education. I mean, somebody ought to say amen there. I mean, that's, that's what they thought of. And, and so I, I went to school and it was fine. I, I was an above uh, D student, and, um, and uh, 
I, I was a B student and say, why'd you get B's? Because my dad told me that if I didn't get B's, I couldn't play sports. Had he told me I couldn't play sports without A's, I think I would have worked to get A's. But anyway, um, and I was, I was in math class one time and we were doing long division. It was like two number division, like 20 divided by 10. I'm kidding. Uh, it was more like 1,270,604 divided by 2,116, which comes out, in case you're wondering, 600.474, and then it continues on, if you care, which if you only care if you're a nerd. Um, and so I looked it up and figured it out. I had to Google that. Um, but I knew how to do long division. You grabbed a calculator, you punched in the numbers, and you came to the conclusion. But my teachers didn't feel like that was an appropriate method. And so they, one afternoon, or they gave us a sheet of paper, and it had 20 long divisions on it. And we had to bring it back the next day, and we had to show our work. Now, I had tried this once to grab my calculator that I had hid under my bed, so my mom wouldn't find it because calculators were anathema to my mom. And so I had tried that once before and I'd wrote down the numbers and then I just filled in numbers where everything should be. And the teachers at this school, they checked that kind of information. So I, I had to do long division. Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't really happy doing the long division. It took a long time. It wasn't necessarily difficult. It just took forever. And I was not having fun doing it. So I went home and I did the first question. took me about 10 minutes. And I did the second question. took me about 5 to 10 minutes just because it took so much work to do and write everything out. By about question number 4 or 5, I started to have a rough time. I, this, I, 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 I hate to tell you this, but I actually started crying. I cried over division. Now, probably nobody in the room's ever done that before, but I cried over division. And my mom comes in the room and she's like, Christopher, why are you crying? I'm like, Mom, look at the homework that they gave me. So much, 20 questions. I know how to do it. Why do they have to give me 20 questions? And, and my parents were, were very, very wise, very smart. They also didn't care about my emotions. They still don't care about my emotions. And um, my mom looked at the paper, and she did. She comforted me. She gave me a big hug. She said, why don't you go to the bathroom and wash your face off and, and, and kind of gather yourself together again. And so I did all of that. And then she, <laughs> I came back to her. And I'm totally thinking she's going to say, you know what? That's good. Four or five questions is enough. Oh, no. Arlene's not that way. I don't know what I was thinking. She said, now sit down and finish all 20 questions. But, but mom, I know how to do it. She said, we don't pay for you to go to that school for you not to do the homework. You're doing the homework. Now shut your mouth and get the work done. And when you're done, you can do something fun unless it's time for bed, which I didn't finish till it was time for bed. It was a long night. You know, the problem was this. Not that I didn't know how to do long division. I was fine with long division. It didn't bother me at all. But the whole time I kept thinking this, you know, Last year, I never had to do homework at night. I was homeschooled. I was done with work by one at the latest two in the afternoon. Last year, I could do my own thing. 
Last year, I never missed watching a basketball game on ESPN or any of the networks. We watched every game, and tonight my dad's watching a game, and I'm stuck in a room, and I have to, I have to focus on this homework. Last year, I played basketball at night, and tonight I'm doing all of this stupid homework. I couldn't let last year go. I had a new school. I was happy about it. I enjoyed it. But I didn't want what I thought the good things of my past were to change. So I kept dwelling on my past. I kept living in the past. The Apostle Paul in our text is talking to believers. And he's been talking about doctrinal issues. The book of Romans is our constitution. We, I think this is message 43 in our study of the book of Romans. And Paul has been talking the first uh, division in the book of Romans is chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse number 20. And it talks about doctrinal matters, primarily sin and judgment. And then the second division of this book is chapter 3, verse 21 through 521. And it's two and a half chapters talking about salvation. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul spends two and a half chapters helping us to understand that if you want to be right with your creator and know for sure today that if you were to die, you would go to heaven, that the only way that you could be saved is by grace, the grace of Christ alone, through faith in Christ alone, because of the finished work of Christ alone on Calvary's cross. Paul deals with that. And then our third division is found in chapter 6 through chapter 9. And because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, there was this fear that was had, it seems like in the Apostle Paul's life, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that people might go, I'm saved, I'm good, I can now do whatever I want, I can do my own thing. And so Paul is writing here, and he's talking about the reality that true salvation brings about sanctification or Christ-likeness. Or we could say it this way. When you become a Christian, you're different. When you become a Christian, you're different. And Paul is not using his own experience to tell this point. Oh, no, 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 no. He's using the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel to establish this reality. The, the person of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ to establish the reality that when I become a Christian, I am to be different. We see it in verse number 9. Knowing this, Romans 6, 9. That Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10 the victory of Christ over death. The victory of Christ over death. This cannot be overstated. Christ is victorious over death. Paul talks about this throughout Romans chapter 6. Look at it. Verse number 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse number 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Verse number 5. Being planted together in the likeness of his death. Verse number 6. Knowing this that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. 
Verse number seven, he that is dead is freed from sin. Verse number eight, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse number nine, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. This whole point that Paul is making is coming to a, a, a beautiful conclusion. And he wants us to understand with tremendous emphasis that Jesus Christ is victorious over death. Stories had circulated in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day. People who had died and come back to life were fanciful for sure. The most famous one of their fictional stories was Lucian, or one of the most famous, I should say. Lucian, the lover of lies. In Lucian, the lover of lies, the Christians would know of miraculous stories of resurrections. It happened throughout the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the boy that Elijah raised back to life. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha the prophet raised the son of the Shumanite woman. Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 35 and following, Jesus raised the ruler of the synagogue's daughter. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 and following, Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain back to life. Probably the most famous illustration of the resurrection or being raised back to life was in John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, back to life. They're very, very, probably the most famous, maybe not, but I I would argue that it probably is. Acts chapter 9, verse number 36, Peter raised Dorcas, a great servant in the church, back to life. Acts chapter 20, verse number 7, Eutychus, this young man who was listening to Paul preach late into the night, was sitting in a window in the second story of a house, second or third story in a house, and he fell asleep because Paul, what the Bible says, was long in preaching. It's biblical to preach long. Paul was long in preaching, and, and Eutychus fell asleep, and it worked all day, I'm sure, and he fell out of the window, and he died, and Paul raised him back to life. But Christ's resurrection that we read about in our text is very different than any of those. For Jesus' resurrection was not temporary. It was total. It was complete. These other folks were raised from the dead, and then they were still susceptible to death. They later died. They lived. They lived. They died. Christ raised them from the grave. They lived some more, and then they died, and they died permanently. Jesus, when he died, was raised or transformed into an immortal body, no longer susceptible to death. His is a permanent resurrection, not temporary. He wasn't raised and have victory over death for a little while and then go back to the grave. Oh, no. He was raised incorruptible. He was raised without any form of corruption. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just a few pages to the right. Don't lose Romans 6. We're coming back. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 51. The Bible says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment. I'm sorry, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For this corruption, this physical body is what corruption means. This physical body, this corruption must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because we're a verse-by-verse teaching church, we will go back to Romans 6, and we have to do some work here. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Verse number 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. He died unto sin once. What does that word once mean? It means once and for all. Not simply one time and then death took over again. No, he died unto sin one time and for all. He has total and complete victory once and for all. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, the Bible says, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the peoples. For this he did, offered sacrifice, once when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 12, Neither by the blood of bulls, uh, by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9, 26, For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse number 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, that unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 10.10, by the which will we are, will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Go back to chapter 10, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. I want you to understand this, that the blood of Jesus Christ was so powerful, it was so efficacious that Christ need not die for sins multiple times, but one time. Why? Because Christ alone has the power over death, over hell, and over the grave. Trusting in anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ would not only be futile, it will lead to destruction because Christ alone paid the price for our sin. only Jesus. He offered one sacrifice for sin forever. You see, we understand that we're sinners. It's intuitive. Well, I don't know that it's that big of a deal. No, no, it's a big deal. Our text says in Romans chapter 6, verse number 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin one time. Well, just once. 
You say, well, Pastor, why, why is this a point? Well, there are some cults out there that teach that Jesus Christ is perpetually on the cross. That he is always on the cross. He is always dying for the sin of mankind. Some people actually believe that every time you sin, Jesus has to die all over again for your sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus cried, Christ died one time for the sin of mankind. That's how powerful that he is. And verse number 10 says, and we have to do this work in the word. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Not only die for sin once, but he is alive, and Christ is eternally with God the Father. He's with God. God can't accept anything that is not perfect, that is not pure, that is not completely holy. Anything that is other than, uh, he cannot accept any spot, any sin. And Christ, when he died, paid the price for mankind's sin. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he has been with God forever since he put that blood on the mercy seat that's in heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse number 34. The Bible says, who is he that, he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Ephesians 1.20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Christ authored our faith. Christ finished our faith. Christ originated our faith. He finalized our faith. The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne. Go back to Romans 8.34 just for a second. I want you to see this. Why is Christ making, why is Christ, uh, or let me rephrase it, what is Christ doing at the right hand of the throne of God? The Bible says, who is at, even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. What is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? He is interceding for the believer. He is, the word interceding means a go-between or, 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 or uh, um, a, uh, 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 an advocate, an attorney, a lawyer. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Satan, it seems that this is the way that it goes from the book of Job. We get this illustration that Satan, or this idea, Satan is coming before the Lord and making accusations to the Lord about believers. Satan is saying to the Lord, look at Chris Chadwick. Look at what he's done. Look at the attitude that he had. Look at the action that he did. Look at the way he drove on the freeway, Father. Look at this dude. And there's Jesus up there at the Father's right hand reminding the Lord and being an advocate to the Lord and saying to the Lord, yes, Lord, he, he, he drives like he's crazy. We're working on that, Father. But understand, he's washed in the blood of the Lamb. He's a child of mine. He is justified. He has been brought in a right relationship with you because on June 16th, 1983, as a 10-year-old kid in Port Orchard, Washington, he bowed his head and his knee and, and repented of his sin and accepted you alone as his Savior. Lord, he is one of yours. 
doesn't just do it for me. He does it for every single follower of his, every one of his children. He maketh intercession for us. So Jesus, who lives with God at God's right hand, who is co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful. Jesus is all God. He is all man. And he lives unto God and has for 2,000 years since his crucifixion and did prior to that for all of eternity and will sit at the Father's right hand for all of eternity. He is our Savior, and He is victorious over death. Well, all of chapter 6, the first 10 verses, really come to this culmination in verse number 11. As a matter of fact, the first two words of verse number 11 are, are, are hinges on which this whole chapter kind of rests or turns. I mean, they're powerful. They're, without understanding them, I would submit to you that we would have an incomplete understanding of the text. And so, let's do some work here. We see in verse number 11, the victory of the Christian to walk in a new life. We see the victory of the Christian to walk in new life. He says, likewise, after everything that I've said, everything that's been preached, likewise, or in the same way, or even so. So we can read it this way. For in that he died, he died into sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. In the same way, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in the same way, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed in sin. Well, we don't use the word reckon very often. And sometimes when we do, we would use it maybe in a contextually different than is being used here. This is the Greek word legizomai, and it, it means to put together with one's mind, to count, to occupy oneself with this calculation. Or we could just say it this way. To think deeply about this, to consider this deeply, to understand that this has been put on your account. To reckon something to somebody means that you put it to their account, either in his favor or for what he must be answerable to. But it would be oftentimes an accounting term where somebody could say, now this wouldn't be the exact structure, but this would be the Greek word, legizomai, I want to reckon this $500,000 to the account of um, whoever. Put your name in there. That somebody says, I want to reckon this to you. They're putting it on your account. They're placing it on your account. It's yours. You have to consider this to be yours. You are reckoning it. It's not just, we often say, well, I reckon so. We've heard that's a word of a bygone generation for sure, but um, we often think that, oh, I just think that way. No, no, no. It's more than just to think about something. It's to occupy yourself with this calculation or to understand that this 
this has been put on your account. For I, uh, in the same way that Christ, I mean, come on, verse number 9 and 10, that Christ being raised from the dead died no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. In the same way, consider this to be added to your account. Do you get that? In the same way, this is added to your account. What am I considering? That you are, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, saved, know for sure that if you died today, heaven would be your home. That you are dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Paul is saying this to the church at Rome and to us through the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in His Word and, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our daily life. You must know and fully believe that you are dead indeed unto sin. You're dead. Well, we know what dead means. No longer subject to Dead, indeed, unto sin. Dead people don't pay taxes, except in America. Their children do. Dead people don't obey laws. Dead people don't break laws. Dead people don't argue with their spouses. Dead people don't look at porn. Dead people aren't critical. Dead people don't take God's tithe. Dead people don't drive too fast on the freeway. Can you tell your pastor's under conviction about Debbie's driving? (sighs) Dead people aren't subject to anything. They're dead. So with everything that he just said, 9 and 10. In the same way, consider it to be added to your account that you are dead unto sin. Well, notice what verse number 7 says. He that is dead is freed from sin. Now, we looked at this word and dealt with it clearly uh, last week. The word freed means from the control of, not the influence of, but the control of. I'm no longer controlled by sin. I'm freed from sin. It can influence my life, but I'm not under its control. And then Paul ups the ante, if you will, Christ being raised from the dead, died no more, death has no more dominion over him. He died unto sin once, he lives unto God. Uh, Likewise, or in the same way, consider it to be added to your account that you are dead to sin. You are freed or no longer subject to sin. You don't have to sin anymore. Now we know we will So you say, well, pastor, if we know we will, why is this here? Because we need to understand that we have victory over sin. That's why. We're not only dead unto sin. I love what Paul does here. He takes a negative and he turns it into positive. We're dead indeed. So he double states it. He's drawing great emphasis to this point. 
We're dead unto sin, but we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're not only dead to sin, we're alive unto our Creator because of the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we can sing, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. And that's why we can sing that with tremendous joy in our hearts, with tremendous celebration in our hearts, because we understand that the victory that we have, the life that we have, the freedom that we have, the power over death that we have is not because of us, but it's because of the person of Jesus Christ. you're a believer, you have a new life. New life in Christ, abundant and free. John MacArthur said, until a believer accepts the truth that Christ has broken the power of sin over his life, he cannot live victoriously because in his innermost being, he does not think it is possible. Until a believer accepts the truth that Christ has broken the power of sin over his life, he cannot live victoriously because in his innermost being he does not think it is possible. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a commentator of years gone by, tells the story of a revolution in Latin America that happened in the early 1900s, late 18, early 1900s. And an American citizen was captured by the Revolutionary Guard of, of this country and was immediately sentenced to death. No trial, no investigation, just sentenced to death. And an American officer grabbed the largest American flag he could find and ran out in front of the firing squad and draped the citizen in, a, uh, in the American flag and he yelled at those who would shoot, if you shoot this man, you will fire through the American flag and incur the wrath of a whole nation, at which time the Revolutionary Guard ran. In the same way, Christ's righteousness is draped over every believer. They're protecting him from sin's deadly attacks. But you have to consider yourself to be dead unto sin. Dead indeed unto sin. According to the Boston Medical Center, at any given time, there are 45 million Americans on a diet. I think some of them are here. Americans spend annually $33 billion on weight loss products and other things. I don't think that doesn't include, as far as I understand, gym memberships either, but weight loss products. 45 million Americans. Um, many of you have heard of what is called cyclical dieting or repetitive dieting. It's like you diet and then you get off the diet and then you start dieting again, and then you get off it, and it just becomes this cyclical thing. Like around our church, I don't mean to point anybody out personally. I, I could name Bernie's name, but I won't do this. About every January, there's some folks in our church. If you don't know who Bernie is, he's the guy that led the singing, one of my dearest friends. We've served the Lord together for 18 years. been a long time. I'm excited about that. But I'm kidding. He's never been on a diet in his life. But... Uh, 
about every year, people will, around January, okay, this is going to be our year. We're going to lose weight this year. And then they go on a diet. And, and I'm told that the average diet lasts about a week and a half. 10 to 15 days, the average diet lasts, and then people are right back where they were, starting all over again. And many of you know, often worse than you were before you started, right? I mean, that's just kind of how it is. Well, I got to thinking about that. So, you know, as a pastor, you really try to work on illustrations to help people get insight into the message, And the truth of the word. An illustration is a window into the truth that hopefully you will not soon forget. I mean, you want to preach the theology, but you want to give an illustration to help people understand. So I I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about people who diet and, and the effect that it has on folks' lives and the cyclical nature of it. And so as I'm working on this illustration, I'm, I'm really thinking, and I talked to Debbie about it, and I said, hey, Deb, could you help me with this? And so we talked about it. And so I came up, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. I think it's going to make an impact in some of your lives, hopefully spiritually, but if not spiritually, at least you'll know how to lose weight. And so I came up with it. You ever see people, this is kind of how most people live their lives. Now, these are things that our staff enjoys eating. I love double stuff Oreos. How many of you love double stuff Oreos? Now, there are some people in this room that literally, I can't believe this. I find this hard to believe. I question their salvation and their sanity. Uh, Bernie's one. This is the first time I ever heard it in my life was Bernie told me this. He said, Pastor, to be honest with you, I don't really like the white stuff in the middle. I said, whoever said such a dumb statement? Now you know why I care about his kids. Somebody needs to help them be normal. He said, don't you know it's just lard and sugar? I said, oh, praise his holy name. (laughs) Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the double stuff for everyone. I mean, I was pumped by that. So now Bernie will eat, we'll, we'll eat these together and he'll take the white, the, the cream off and give it to me. And I'm like, oh yeah. oh yeah. Like when it comes to like, you know, carrot cake, like people are like, pastor, you like carrot cake. I really don't like carrot cake that much. I love the cream cheese frosting on carrot cake. I can eat the cream cheese frosting with a carrot. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, a, but, but I love double stuff Oreos. Um, cosmic brownies. Now, I don't know if you like Cosmic Brownies. If you've never had them, you're, you, you need to try them. They're a cross between good and terrible. If you're shaking your head no right now, don't act like you're a physical specimen. All right? You just like other sweet things. Love Cosmic Brownies. And these ones have chocolate chip candy, which is knockoff M&M's. Little kids don't know that. Oh, queso. It's Mexican food right here. Totally Mexican food right here. Now, I'm telling you, uh, Bernie will eat this stuff cold in the church office. He just grab a, grab a stale old chip. He'll eat it cold. He'll just suck it off. Totally. He doesn't double dip. He believes in quad dipping. He just keeps dipping until the chip falls off. And by the way, some of the 8.30 service went to Bernie like, we're praying for you. Pastor was mean today. I've not said one untrue thing today. I've just revealed his sin. So, okay, so isn't this stuff, this stuff is so bad for you. 
and yet so good. It is made with water and a cheese blend. <laughs> it's like cheese whiz in a, in a glass bottle. Oh, I love this stuff. Uh, come on, who doesn't love gummy bears? Can I get some love for gummy bears this morning? Aren't these things great? I mean, I, I, I could eat my weight in gummy bears, and I weigh 140 pounds. <sighs> oh, peanut butter crunch, like peanut butter crunch toffee. How many of you like this stuff? Like, like six of you? <sighs> when you have a refined sugar palate like I have, this becomes really good to you. We'll try something better. Uh, how many of you like Snicker bars? <laughs> This used to be Debbie's favorite, peanut M&M's. Uh, these, these, these were her, like, big thing. Uh, one of my new bad favorites, Boom Chick Pop. Sweet, salty kettle corn. I find myself eating this and getting irritated that I can't get it to my mouth fast enough and just putting my face in the bowl. <laughs> you got to wash that down with something, so... Why not the greatest liquid ever invented by man? More chemicals in this than any other thing. Mountain Dew, 46 grams of sugar per 12 ounce, 46 divided by four. I know my math. Uh, what is that, like 11.2 teaspoons of sugar in every 12 ounces? I mean, this stuff is amazing. It'll kill you in a minute. It'll kill you in a minute. Or keep you alive, I'm not sure, one of the two. And then for breakfast, who doesn't love Pop-Tart Bites? And these are frosted. Unfrosted Pop-Tarts are anathema. You ought to be shot for buying unfrosted Pop-Tarts. Can somebody say amen and help me out here? Teenagers, there's like three of us that think, I think he's pretty extreme. Um, Come on. I know some people are like, yeah, thanks. Like four of you are waving your hands. and Others of you are going, I don't know about that. No, these are made with real cheese. <laughs> it says it right there. My favorite chip, Ruffles. Now, not just any Ruffle, but you know the big bag of Ruffles that you get at Costco? And then when you first open it, if it hasn't been squashed at all, and there's that one ruffle in there that's about the size of a, like a tortilla, and you have to have like nine bites to get it down, I live for that experience. He said, I thought you lived for Jesus. Well, we'll get to there eventually. But I love that ruffle. It like comes out on a shelf. Oh, I love ruffle. I mean, come on. Uh, Red Bull. Oh. No, you, I don't drink that stuff. I have my Frappuccino that I got at the gas station because I'm a connoisseur of fine sugary coffees. This is kind of where America lives. But you know about every January, this is what people say, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to eat healthy. So they buy carrots, which have a lot of sugar in them, but they're better than nothing. They buy a lot of carrots. Yams. 
I like yams. They're fun. You cook them in the microwave till they explode. You put a stick of butter on them, some sugar, some cinnamon. It's good to go. Broccoli. The number one gas-causing food in America today. People say, like, oh, what about those refried beans? Now try that broccoli on your plate. That thing's like a scorched earth policy inside your bowels right there. Hey, don't you eat broccoli? No, I take spirulina. I can't deal with the pain. <laughs> Zane Garza's breakfast right here. Where did we get that banana? Yeah, this banana's like nine years old. <laughs> oh, a sour Granny Smith apple. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Plant-based protein. This is mine. You say, why plant-based? Because I'm allergic to whey. It's not as good as whey protein. It doesn't taste as good as whey protein. It doesn't do for you as much as whey protein. But it's better than nothing. Golden beets. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How many of you had these for breakfast? Well, thanks for helping me out. Oh, keto pancakes. They look like the real thing, but they don't taste like the real thing. Not at all. Oh, and and for a snack once a month, raspberry yogurt-covered pretzels. Oh, these things are bomb. Don't act like that. Correct your spirit. And for those days when you're just running nature's mix, sincerely nuts, raisins, pineapple, peanuts, papaya, cranberries, cashews, and almonds, right here. I love, I'm allergic to peanuts, so I can't have this anymore, but I love stuff like this. Water. It's amazing. It's like God created it. Oh, here's my favorite part of eating healthy. If you don't believe what I believe about this, just keep it to yourself. Salmon. Very healthy for you. Very healthy. Let's see. Oh, turkey. I like turkey. Big fan. Big fan, especially like smoked turkey. That's really good. Shrimp. This is literally the first time shrimp's ever got a standing ovation. <laughs> shrimp. Uh, burgers. You uh, say, are they healthy for you? Absolutely. Got to love them. They're so good for you. Probably the best thing in all this for you as far as vitamins, minerals, flavor, steak. By the way, if you're from the South, this is what steak should look like when you cut into it. People say, oh, I like mine brown all the way through. That's called beef jerky. Go to 7-Eleven or Walmart and get it. This is steak. We're supposed to taste it, all right, just so that you know, just so you know. And for weddings, Oreo thin cookies. Now, here's what happens. Here's what happens. 
Every January, we're going we're gonna to eat this food. We're going to eat healthy. I tell you, we're going to eat healthy. We're done eating garbage. We're not eating garbage anymore. We're done with that. Done with it. And then you come over here, and the whole time you're eating yams, this is what you're thinking about. Oh, I hope this tastes like a gummy bear. Or carrots. And you'll go, oh, carrots are good, but they're nothing like Cheetos and Ruffles. I mean, come on. Or, I got this apple. I, I hope it has the texture of, of M&M peanuts. Or, or, I know I'm drinking a protein shake, but oh, what I wouldn't give for a Mountain Dew right now. Oh, that is so good. Oh, drinking water. Honey, you remember when we used to have those Red Bulls and those Frappuccinos? Those were the days. It was so much fun back then. And now, the best thing on this whole table is a small avocado. That's all that we have. Cosmic brownies are better than these. Honey, come on. Come on. I'm not... I'm not dumb. You know what happens when you do that? It's not long before you're like, I need a cheat day. So you go on your cheat day and you eat all of it. And then you go back and you're like, oh, that cheat day was so good. I think to make myself feel better, I'll have some broccoli and you eat a little bit of broccoli, and then you have another cheat day. And then you have another cheat day. And then you have another cheat day. And before long, you're back where you started. Why? Listen to what I'm about to say. Because you never died to this. Did you hear me? You never died to it. You're not dead to it. Matter of fact, the whole time you were over here, you probably were more alive to the garbage food in your life than you've ever been because every time you eat this, you think of that. Every time you eat something healthy, you think of something unhealthy. Every time you down a carrot, you're missing boom chick pop. Every time that you eat an apple, you're missing gummy bears. And all you can think the whole time is, I really wish that I didn't have yams, but that I had a plate full of fries. I really wish I didn't have yams, but I had a plate full of onion rings. I wish I had a plate full of, uh, of some super creamy, cheesy, queso, Mexican, Italian sausage, spaghetti, or whatever the case may be. And, and, and your whole life, even when you're over here, is consumed with what's over here. So what you're doing is you're dieting religiously because you've never died to that. And you'll never have victory in your life as a Christian until you die to sin. You'll never have victory in your diet till you die to that stuff in your life. And here's why 
so many Christians struggle in their life because I'm going to give up porn, but you're giving up porn in your own power, and the whole time you're giving up porn, you're thinking about porn. Like, I haven't viewed porn in three days, seven hours, 12 minutes, and six seconds. Oh, Oh, this is so hard. This is so hard. I remember how much fun it was. I remember what it did. Oh, it was so good. Or, or, or how about this? I haven't smoked weed in like, in, like, in like a week and a half. Oh, what I wouldn't give for a big giant joint. What I wouldn't give to have that. Now, you're not doing it, but you're over here. But here's the problem. You're not considering yourself dead. Oh, I, I, I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not cheating on my husband. But man, isn't there a ton of women that are out there that I could look at? Isn't there a ton of women out there I could have relationships with? I mean, you're not doing it yet, but you're just thinking about it. Why? Because you're not dead to it. Well, I mean, I know what God wants me to do, so I'm going to go ahead and do it because I have to. But I remember what it was like before I had to and how much fun it was. You remember the days when we were at the gas lamp, just party all night, sleep all day, do our own thing, just hang out. You remember how much fun that was? Oh, those were the days. But God won't let me do that, so I don't do it. I mean, I'm not going to yell at my wife anymore because Jesus said I can't yell at my wife anymore. I'm not going to be bitter towards my husband anymore because God said I can't be bitter to my husband. But I really can't stand that dude. And if God would let me, I would give him a piece of my mind. I mean, but God won't let me, so I won't do it. You just haven't died to it. Matter of fact, notice, look at the text. Come on, look at the text. I've memorized it. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves. Look at it. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Now, remember, we defined this word sin last week. The word sin is harmardia. It's a Greek word, and it means in this text the totality of sin. As a matter of fact, I'm doing what is called a homiletical disservice. Homiletics is the study of preaching. A disservice means that I probably shouldn't have said what I said, but I want to give some application. But the homiletical disservice is by trying to to apply this text when Paul does not apply the text to any sin specifically. Paul is simply saying the word sin here, harmardia, means the whole body of sin that, that I am to be dead indeed unto, if you will, the whole body of sin. It has no power over me. It has no control over me. No, no, it's completely dead. Oh, I can't believe it had to die. No, no, there's something better. Likewise, also consider yourself in the same way, consider this to be added to your account. Consider yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You gave that up, not for something lesser, but something better. For something better. For something better. You mean Jesus is better than the hoe I'm looking at? Yep. Jesus is better than my discouragement, my despondency, and my depression? Yep. Jesus is better than the heartache 
in my family? Yeah. And I'm, listen to me, I'm, uh, I'm dead to that, but I don't just flounder out here. I'm alive unto God through Jesus our Lord. Because we all know this, don't we? I mean, come on. Oh, I went way too long, sorry. Not really. I would have finished earlier if I was. I'm dead to lying. I'll just speak the truth honestly. We know this, that we can do a lot of things religiously, don't we? Guys, you can shield your eyes from women religiously. I don't want to do that. I don't want God to kill me. I don't want my wife to see me. And and that's fine. At the end of the day, that's fine to some degree. But can I tell you the reason why we do what we do? It's because we're alive to God and we don't want anything to break that relationship that we have with God. We, We don't want anything to interrupt that. That's why it's foolish to go, oh, man, I'm going to eat all this healthy food. But on Tuesdays, I'm loading up. It's foolish. You've not died yet. And I'm to consider myself to be dead, indeed, or for sure. That's what the word indeed means. Making a double powerful statement. Dead, indeed, to sin. In contrast to my death, to sin, I am to consider myself to be alive unto God. Are you alive unto God? Have you repented of your sin and asked Jesus Christ to save you? If you haven't repented of your sin and asked Jesus Christ to save you, you're not alive unto God. You have no relationship with God. A relationship with God starts when you realize you're a sinner. You understand that your sin separates you from God, sends you to a place of eternal torment called hell, and it's worse than you could imagine, and it's for eternity. It's for eternity. There's no get-out-of-hell-free cards. There's no Jesus and I have an understanding. There's none of that. We are condemned for eternity to hell if we don't have a relationship with God. But if you will repent and ask Jesus to forgive you and save you, he promises to give you eternal life. That's salvation. But true life happens when I consider myself dead to sin, no longer under the power of it, but alive to God. The greatest life lived, the most peace-filled, joy-filled, wonderful life lived is a life lived unto God. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.